Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. DealQuest viewers and listeners, I am so excited to have Damon Gersh back on the DealQuest podcast. Um, Damon was a guest on episode 25 when we were a little baby podcast a little over two and a half years ago. And now um, I've got him back when we've you know hit top 2% on listening notes. Um, uh, and uh, so Damon is the founder and CEO of Maxims. Um, and we're going to have an evolution here. And that's what we're going to be talking about. But it was the founder and CEO of Maxims, which is a widely recognized as, the, as an innovative leader in the emergency property damage restoration industry with specialized expertise and resources to help residential, commercial, and industrial clients successfully recover from all types of disasters. He was a real pioneer in the industry, been around for years and years. When we spoke to him um, you know, at episode 25, uh, and you should go back and listen to that episode. It would be a really great, you know, sort of, you'll see the evolution. Damon had, and we'll recap it you know, very quickly in this episode, you know, Damon had put some um, things in place for his management management structure and sort of had his cake and needed, you know, needed too. He wasn't spending a lot of time in the business and he was running it. And at that time was not planning, at least in that moment, to sell it. And now has evolved. And what he's done is he's he's since sold the company to first on-site property restoration, which is the second largest company in the industry. Uh, they have over 2,000 employees, and he now uh, serves as, as a strategic advisor to that company. So, uh, Damon, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Corey. It's a pleasure to be back. Yeah. Well, it's great to have you. I listed as you know, as a, as a, as a friend and client of mine, and fellow EO and fellow past pre- EO president. You know, I'm, I'm I'm personally excited for you with this evolution, um, and I think it's going to be really instructive to our listeners. And viewers, you know, to see the evolution, I'm always talking about the mindset of a deal maker and how things evolved and why you weren't looking to exit then, but then you did. So I think it's going to be really fascinating. But before we go through all that stuff, and um, my questions are a little different than they were back in on episode 25. So, but I, I want to take you back and and maybe um, you might have talked about this a little bit the first time around. But when you were a little kid growing up, um, what did you want to be? Um, because uh, I know your dad was in the business, so. You know, was this on the radar or was it, you know, something else at that 8, 10, 12 year old age? Uh, it really wasn't on my radar. I'd say uh, it'd probably be rock star and athlete were, you know, probably not that unusual. But I think as I got older and I uh, needed a summer job and started to work with my dad, that was when I think uh, the idea of not only, you know, getting to work alongside my dad, who was an entrepreneur for 60 years, uh, but also, you know, learn a very interesting business that uh, was different every day. I love it. Well, I, I have to say, uh, and I hope it's not out of turn, 
you know, David said that he wanted to be a rock star back then. I happen to know that he's after this interview, he's heading to band practice. Isn't that what you told me? <laughs> that is true. <laughs> and we have it right here in my basement. <laughs> so, you know, the rock star dream has not uh, has not left you. <laughs> you got to keep it alive. <laughs> I love it. Um, OK. And, and what was your um, first deal of any type that you can remember you did? It could be something little when you were a kid or something early in the business or Anything that comes to mind that's a deal? Oh, boy. Uh, legal or illegal? <laughs> <laughs> that might be the answer. That might say, say it all. There you go. I'll leave it there. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Probably in high school sometime. Okay, got it. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, all right. So, so listen, um, why, don't, why don't I let you just, you know, just take a few minutes and you recap where you were, right? Two and a quarter years ago, episode 25, uh, and the conversation we had of sort of, you know, what you put in place, what you had, what your thinking was, you know, at that point, what your concerns were that you'd seen. Let's do it. You know, we don't have to, re people should go back and listen to the whole episode, but let's give them a, let's give them a, you know, a few minute recap so we can set the stage for how things evolve. Happy to do it. So I uh, started the business with my dad when I was 21 years old. So right out of college. Uh, so, uh, as you know, as an entrepreneur and EO, you know, hundred hour plus weeks to get this thing off the ground, uh, turn it into something sustainable, you know, um, and just learned, uh, how to grow the business, how to scale the business and all the things that go into that in the nineties, all the technology evolution and all that. It was like, <laughs> I felt like a time traveler, right? Uh, internet, email, fax machines from pagers to alphanumeric to cell phones, to all that. So, uh, you know, through that whole very interesting time to be starting and growing a business. Uh, and, you know, through entrepreneurial learning, I kind of learned how to scale a business and probably not in the way that my dad did where he was everything to the business, you know, mm. and he loved the industry. He loved being the man and being at the center of everything. And that was one of my hesitations to get into this business. It's an emergency business, 24 hours a day. You know, we joke in the industry that the biggest disasters happen at Friday at 5 p.m. when you're ready to go away for the weekend. So I can't tell you how many vacations I've canceled and sacrifices that my wife has made and, uh, you know, through all the years of responding and being the man. And I think through EO and learning uh, through coaches and uh, reading and uh, just how to scale a business. So I'll just plug the E-Myth here as a great example. And, yep. uh, I saw Michael Gerber in 1995. And he said, if you work in your business, you're not an entrepreneur. You got to work on your business. And uh, if you read the book, really, he is very clear that the purpose of having a business is to support an amazing life, right? Yeah. That you're a human being first having a life and an entrepreneur is just part of that life, not the other way around. But I've certainly experienced being engrossed as an entrepreneur. And, you know, it seems like you're an entrepreneur 24-7 because that's what <laughs> it takes to get the business started. But then after a while, you have to reinvent yourself to obviously make it sustainable, uh, delegate, build a team and grow and scale a company. Otherwise, you'll just be chief cook and bottle work, uh, washer forever. Yeah. So I'll just fast forward years of, you know, working on the business, developing a leadership team you know, opening locations and really being able to kind of get out of the day to day and really be, you know, visionary and, you know, a true executive, you know, making kind of strategic decisions and letting my team execute on those. So I think when we spoke at your podcast a couple of years ago, 
I had been in the business uh, approaching 30 years. Yeah. So tw- 2020 would have was uh, my 31st year in the business. So, and it was also the year that my youngest child, Debbie, was going off to college. So my son had already gone off. So it was, I kind of saw strategically, right, that um, there was a change of life coming, that we were going to become empty nesters. So it didn't make sense to make any big change of control or any anything while the kids were in school. You know, you want to be around for all of that. That was part of that. Uh, also to not be engrossed by the business, to be there for every dance recital, basketball game, cheer practice, all that stuff. So with that kind of phase of life was coming to an end and 30 years in the business, I kind of felt I had a fantastic team that I'd grown and developed. And it was time that I would uh, kind of graduate to be a chairman and be a true executive and let my team uh, run the business. So uh, at that time, you and I had worked together on how do we uh, align the motivations and incentives of the team so that I can go off and maybe explore some other interests that I have. Uh, and as you say, have my cake and eat it. So my team feels that uh, we're on the same page and not that they were doing all the work and I was off on a boat somewhere getting all the benefits. Yeah. And, and um, you know, and listen, that, and that was really, you know, instructive. And I think it's, you know, it's powerful because um, you, you really were able to achieve that. You know, you, you had it set up where you built an amazing management team. They were running, you know, a very successful company under, you know, your vision and guidance, but you know, you had a lot of freedom, right? At that point, you know, you yeah. weren't humping it every day like you did to build it. You know, you got to the point where you had a team that basically could run the thing largely without you uh, in terms of, certainly in terms of day to day, right? Certainly. I think uh, in the couple of years leading up to 2020, I was probably in the office less than 30 days a year, you know, probably less and less, you know, I first started to take off the summers, you know, and I was always available. I let them know that if, if you need me, if it's a if mommy help me, I'm bleeding emergency, I'll pick up on the first ring. Right. But I think I did a good job developing a team and having great people that they would never call me. So I, I felt a little like they didn't need me, which was good on some level, you know, a little sad on another. But yeah, um, yeah so 2020 was really I was developing a 2020 vision. So personally, uh, graduating, you know, with my empty nest status, you know, and still being young to, you know, enjoy other things in life besides just the business. And then perhaps graduating from the business a little bit to a chairman role and letting my team have the glory and the entrepreneurial opportunity. And great. You know, and I remember we talked back then, you know, like you had set it up, obviously you, the economics were very lucrative for you, you know, you weren't working much. And, and you know, there was part of you, you know, if people listen back at that interview, it wasn't like you had in any way ruled it out. It just wasn't at that time the time that you were going to, and this was, uh, I guess, 2019, right? Um, that, uh, so it was before you hit that, that, you know, the, the went into the 31st year and, and a year or so before the empty nest, right? Um, right? And, you know, and and whether it was life circumstances or whatever, you know, you, you at that point, at least you were like, hey, you know, this is a pretty good deal. I don't necessarily need to sell this thing. And, and you know, and, and, and you and I had a discussion about the fact that we knew some folks that had sold some things and, and, um, you know, and, maybe had some regrets about it or didn't know what to do with themselves or, you know, invested in other companies and that wasn't really satisfying. So, you know, right. That was on your mind back then. Um, So let's talk about what evolved in, you know, in a couple of years, um, you know, in your, you know, sort of 
evolution thinking, opportunity that showed up, you know, whatever it was. Like, uh, what happened in the two and a quarter years from episode 25? Uh, well, through the virtual equity plan you helped me craft, I really was a bespoke plan. I felt that we collaborated on that. And it really, um, the idea was what I wanted to align the incentives with my management team. So there was uh, certain incentives that if they stayed until uh, they retired, they got some kind of payout. If they stayed uh, or if they were fired, they kind of forfeited certain rights. And But the real brass ring at the end of the day, because there were formulas on the EBITDA, was that if we ever sold, that they got a pro rata share. Uh, so that was really, in the background, was always perhaps the most lucrative exit. Yeah. Understanding that selling to my team was not really an option because they don't have the funds. Uh, that's one. Two, uh, they, uh, you know, being my team, I certainly wouldn't command top dollar from them. They'd, they'd probably get it at a steep discount. Great for them. Not so great for me. And then they probably have to take financing on and service debt. So, um, so really the holy grail there was if we ever decide to sell, that would be the best win-win scenario. So I wanted them to know that if I ever did decide to sell, that I wasn't doing it to them, but I was doing it with them. Right, right. So uh, what happened, I think uh, a lot's happened since we spoke in 2019. <laughs> and I think that that's probably a good way to look at it that, uh, you know, it's like there's an old saying, man plans and God laughs, right? Yeah. So this was the plan. We put it in place and it worked, right? Because there was also an executive comp structure, you know, on growth of EBITDA and my team was killing it. So yeah. we were all, it was win-win all the way around. Um, they were doing a great job learning, growing, making money. You know, I was making money and having a great lifestyle, you know, without being in the office very often. So it was working. And then COVID hit. Yeah. Right. So COVID was actually pretty good for our company because we did a lot of uh, bio cleanups early, early in the phase and all that stuff. So, but certainly that wasn't part of the plan, right? And <laughs> right. Then as, as things shut down, as office buildings and, you know, because a lot of our clients are real estate, you know, gyms, uh, hospitals, hotels, restaurants, all, all, all those facilities are now closed. So we did see a dip in the business. Yeah. Um, but I knew it was temporary and I was willing to to forego it. But in the background of all this, there's a lot of deal activity going on in my industry. So uh, and we were the largest in New York City. We still are. So certainly I was getting calls all the time uh, inquiring about selling. And I actually would take calls from the credible ones, you know, because yeah. uh, there's a lot of incredible ones just kind of dialing for dollars. Um so a lot of it was learning, you know, hearing what their perspective was, you know, kind of hearing, you know, what what their take on the industry. And I was kind of gathering that they were saying this happens, in, you know, these investment bankers, this happens in industries. We've seen it before. You know, it's five years of consolidation. And then in 10 years, basically, you're only left with the big players and then everybody's fighting for the crumbs, you know. Yeah. So I have to know, you know, again, not being in the day to day business my job was to look down the road and see where's this industry going and where, you know, what are the trends happening? Like, I don't want to be blockbuster, right? And, you know, still <laughs> selling VHS tapes, you know? So that was part of it, you know, just seeing the trends. And there was a lot of activity, uh, not just in my industry, but a lot of consolidation. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I entertained some conversations and I had the same exact thing that I said to everybody. I said, I'm not interested in selling. 
I'm happy to have the conversation. My job as CEO is to explore opportunities and build relationships. I I know how things work. Things start with a conversation from the acorn grows the mighty oak. At some point, if I'm willing to sell, at least we'll know each other and we could talk at some point in the future. Right. Right. And then I'd add, and the only way I would sell is if it's a ridiculous offer that is one that I just unprecedented that I can't refuse. Yeah. So that was kind of my spiel. And, you know, but I really was not interested in selling. Uh, but then fast forward, uh, a client of mine asked if I'd be willing to speak to their uh, executive team. So this is a publicly held company. Yeah. And I said, well, of course, you're one of our best clients. Why wouldn't I speak to the head of strategic acquisition? <laughs> and the same thing, great conversation. But, it, it, you know, I told him the same, hey, who knows? Down the road, if things change, we'll see how that goes. And then not, nothing really happened from that. But then I got a call from the CEO a few months later. So this is now May of 2020. Yep. Um, and I had fallen off my roof and broke my arm. So I might have been on some drugs. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I spoke with the CEO of the firm and he shared with me a very compelling vision for this company to be the not only the largest, but the best restoration company on the planet. International mm-hmm. company, um, you know, people first to make, you know, to build a brand that will outlast us all. So as a CEO, he was talking my language, a compelling vision, sure. not just about dollars and cents. So uh, I was interested in what he had to say, told him the same thing. But he said, hey, this is a great opportunity for you to, for you to take some chips off the table, yep. mitigate your risks, right? Because anybody owning a business has risk, and to create some huge opportunity for your team. And I thought, that's interesting. Nice talking to you. You know, We'll see where it goes. So <laughs> I'll kind of put a pause there. That was into May 2020. Yeah, got it. So that's great. And, uh, and you know, and listeners and, and viewers, you know, I, I think it's interesting to, to really follow, you know, wh- one of the things obviously we do on the podcast, you, you've seen, you know, sometimes we'll have investment bankers on or private equity folks or, you know, you know, we, and we deal, delve into deal structure, we delve into valuation, we delve, yeah, and that's useful. But, but the other thing that, you know, anybody who's listened to watch this podcast, you know, consistently sees is that I'm also fascinated by people's journeys and their stories and their and their mindset and their evolution and what has you know us you know act. So you know, I you know, I think there's a real opportunity, especially with Damon, to listen through that. And then the other, you know, the other piece is that um, you know is the ability. So one of the things I you know I talk about is okay. So what are some of the prerequisites to really have a great deal, especially if you're talking about an exit deal? And, you know, I think that's super instructive. And it was, you know, back on episode 25, that was super instructive, even though at that point there wasn't an immediate intention to exit. You know, the whole concept of what Damon talked about with Michael Gerber and the E-Myth and whatever, you know, or any of these, you know, systems that we've learned in EO and other places about scaling is that, you know, one of the ways they say it sometimes is that you want your business to be scalable and saleable doesn't mean you're going to sell it. But the fact that you set it up that way actually helps you whether, you know, you're going to only spend 30 days, you know, a year in the office and have a management team run it or be more attractive to a buyer because the business is not dependent upon you. So it's the same set of actions that benefits you, whether you're going to sell or not, but which which Damon shows it did. But then it also set him up for what ended up to be a very positive and lucrative sale, not only for him, but for his management team. Right. I think that's exactly right. That uh, you know, strategic decisions that make sense, yes, and right. That this makes sense if I don't sell, and it makes sense if I do sell. It's just right. it, that was worth my time and investment to really build something out. 
uh, that would be a win-win either way. So yeah. I think you hit that nail on the head right there. All right. So now we're at May of 2020. You've had another one of these conversations. Maybe it perked your ears a little more than some of the other ones, but still, it's not at the point where you're really discussing, you know, any kind of deal or negotiating or maybe even, I mean, at that point, did you think there was a possibility? I mean, there's always a possibility, but did you think it was likely you're going to sell it or it's still you it was still in the category of, you know, one of those conversations that, well, maybe interesting, learning something, whatever. Um, I think it was still, it's hard to say. I say it was mostly, I wasn't planning on selling, right? Okay. But it was interesting. And I think uh, speaking to the CEO of a public company with a compelling vision, it perked my ears up yeah, more yeah. than any other, which were mostly investment bankers or, you know, private equity firms and stuff where, uh, frankly, I wasn't interested in that because, uh, as I said in the early podcast, part of that virtual equity plan was, I love my team. My team's been with me an average of 20 plus years. So they're like my family. So uh, I just have a sense that, and no offense to private equity and venture capitalists, but that you're basically, you're, I don't want to be denigrating, but right, you're right. a product, right? For yeah, them yeah. to kind of, you know, buy, package and flip, right? Yeah. yeah. Right? A commodity in a way is, you know. Yeah, so, yeah it's not, it, 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 no, it's funny at all. I, I just interject for a second. I, I hadn't seen it in years. We were in a hotel room late one night and it was on, Ron, I was down in Miami, my wife, uh, as David knows. And the the pretty, pretty woman move came on right and you and remember the whole thing with that about Richard Gere is that he went from a guy who bought companies to break them up and destroy them and then there was the old man with the shipping company and and you know he changed his ways and he said we're going to build ships together right like right. You know, there was a vision to build something as supposed to break it up and I and I hear a parallel here yeah you know, you know because I want to set you know if I was going to do this I want to set my team up that they had a great future and great opportunity in the long term not that they were going to you know, have a new boss and then five years from now have some boss that there that was wasn't going to treat them well and that then they would look back and say, Hey Damon, you did this to it to us, not for us or with yeah. us. Yeah. So yeah. so uh you know a private this firm uh first service residential, they're the largest uh residential property management firm in the US, uh they're they're behind first on site property restoration. Yep. So they're the only uh, group backed by a public company. And they're the only ones that articulated any kind of long-term vision or even a compelling vision uh, that wasn't just about making money. It was about uh, really making a mark on the world and developing a world-class brand. Uh, so that certainly caught my attention. And I've been around business for a long time, and I know that these things go in cycles. You know, there's a lot of money in the market, the market runs up, and, you know, there's a lot of private equity money, a lot of cash around. But that yep. doesn't always last forever. You know, I've right. seen these cycles. And then if the market takes a hiccup, then all of a sudden all these deal opportunities dry up. So I was also aware of a window, perhaps, yep. you yep. know, that you don't know how long it's going to be open for. Uh, so all these factors kind of were in the back of my mind. And as you know, I started a national affiliate group, Restoration Affiliates. Yep. It was kind of a virtual national firm so we could service our clients. I talked about that in the podcast. Yep. And a lot of those firms started being bought. Ah, okay. So that so you was really kind of, saw the writing on the wall. I saw some writing on the wall. And one of the bigger firms, one of my friend's firms sold, and I called him to congratulate him. And, uh, you know, really, it was to find out the terms of the deal. <laughs> uh, you know, the valuation and the formula. And of course, you wouldn't tell me, just like I'm right. not going to tell you. Right. Um, 
but he flipped the script. He goes, would you be willing to have a conversation with these guys? I said, well, it's funny. They're a client of mine. I spoke to the CEO, but yeah, sure. Why not? It's worth the conversation. And we started a conversation. They came to New York right in the middle of the pandemic, which, you know, the top three executives of the firm came. So I took that, that they were serious. Right, right. And we met for several hours. And I, I said, listen, you know, it only makes sense if it's an unprecedented, overwhelming offer that I can't refuse. Other than that, why would I fix what's not broken? You right. know, it's profitable right. business. Uh, you know, I have the lifestyle. I have the freedom. I don't answer to anybody. So it really has to be a compelling offer. Otherwise, you know, I'm not going to change what's working for me. Yeah. Yeah. And listen, obviously, we're not going to get into any details of the deal terms or anything, but but it was clearly you sold. So it must have been a compelling offer. <laughs> All right? well, you know what? It, it was, but it wasn't, you know, I think everybody talks about the top line numbers, right? But right, really, right. there's so much more, as I'm sure you've covered in other podcasts. There's the structure of the deal. Yep. There's what was my role? What was yep. their plan for my team? Right? right? Yep. Were they going to break my team up or were they going to keep my team together? Uh, were they um, going to invest in the company? What was their you know strategic plan? All of these things kind of came you know in, into relief, and then um, you know learning about them because I you know they we entered into due diligence you know. And obviously that's them finding out about us, but I was as serious as they were in doing due diligence on them, right? Because these would be my partners and really the people that my team's going to be working with. I mean, who I'm affiliating my reputation with, my my name and my whole company with. So I did a lot of research on them and spoke. I actually spoke to every company that they had acquired up to that point. Wow. So they gave me and I asked them confidentially you know, did the things they said when they were trying to buy you now it's been six months, eight months, a year, whatever, what's been the variance there. And consistently they said, no, they're people of their word, they're people first organization, everything that they said they've done and uh, they've honored their word. And it just, uh, I think it fit in with my own personal impression of the people that I was dealing with the top executives of the firm. So uh, through that process, them vetting us and us vetting them, we really built those relationships Obviously, they knew me, but they needed to get to know my management firm and get comfortable with them. So I think that whole process really, it solidified it for me. And then obviously the terms of the deal at the end of the day, uh, as well as my role, um, were very important. So all those things, I think, came out to be a win-win. And that's when the decision came where I called my dad, who, you know, passed away. (laughs) I said, Pop, uh, what do you think? (laughs) Should I do this? And I got a clear answer. Go for it. Love it. Love it. Love it. And, and you know, um, listeners and viewers, one of the things that uh, Damon talked about as a general deal point is really important. You know, there's this tendency, especially when you are uh, doing a deal, whether it's a you know sale or any other kind of deal with a big company, there's often a tendency to, to think, I mean, it's, it's starting to shift and I'm going to talk a couple of reasons why, but uh, there's a tendency to think that they're really doing the due diligence on you, right? And it really should be a two-way due diligence, right? Uh, you know, and listen, unless you're, most of the folks that I know are much more like Damon. They're not just in it to get a check at top dollar or whatever, you know, and, and frankly, even, even at that, I mean, I, I remember uh, years ago, I started pushing my clients to do more heavy due diligence, financial, legal, you know, uh, obviously cultural, all that stuff. Um, but even on big companies, because like when Enron went down and all these, you know, and WorldCom and all this, all this stuff happened, 
the fact that it was some big public company actually didn't even guarantee that they were truly financially, you know, sound. Like you were actually able, like, you know, before that, if you would ask a big company for information on, the, on their financials, right? <laughs> they'd be like, what? What are you right. talking about? You don't they need to get offended. You know, we're going to give you a check, right? You know, um, and then actually, the one benefit of the Enrons of the world is it actually made it like you had a reason when you were representing the smaller company, that, you know, uh, uh, you know, to argue that you, yeah, no, I need to really actually do financial due diligence on, and legal due diligence and regulatory due diligence, you right. know, because so that was the one gift of, of like the Enrons. Um, but, you know, but also, again, like, and especially, you know, I think a lot of folks in our world, David, we're blessed to know a lot of entrepreneurs who, um, you know, their main motivator isn't the money, right? It's, right. you know, I mean, yeah, sure. We, we like making good money and living a great lifestyle. Right. And that's a lot of it, you know, but but we they do care about their, their teams and their clients and, right. you know, and, and, you know, that all of those, you know, key constituents are, you know, are, are well handled and that, you know, and that the legacy is not, you know, not ruined and things like that. So, I mean, it doesn't mean that they, they're going to take a deal that's monetarily way off the mark, right? But it means that money is not, by you know, not in any way the only the only key factor. And you, you know, and you and you alluded to some of that. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I have to say, I've always learned from other people's experiences. So, a friend of mine had sold in my industry a year before, similar size company, similar type of company, and they sold to a firm uh, backed by a bank, by a private bank, yep. and. Uh, Basically, the whole company uh, was imploding, wow. you know, didn't have great leadership. Uh, they didn't take care of the team. So it was a cautionary tale for me to really, you know, see what could happen. So those were the that helped me ask some pointed questions about what their plans were for my team and their intentions uh, and about the leadership. Some of who I knew from the industry, obviously, they're you know, a big national firm that was the platform that they invested in. But I have to say also uh, being an EO and investing decades in a network, <laughs> yeah. uh, I was able to reach out to entrepreneurs that I know had sold their businesses before. And this was key. Um, I asked around, uh, you know, similar size firms, not necessarily in, in my industry, because basically I don't know many people in my industry, right, right. the entrepreneur group is a pretty niche industry. But I spoke to about a half a dozen entrepreneurs that had sold in the last two years. And I said, okay, <laughs> What do you wish you knew right. when you were starting out that you learned at the end of the day? And each one had a different take on things. And I picked up something. So like one of the key things was uh, one of my friends said, make sure you negotiate your role early in the process. Have difficult conversations early in the process. I said, why? Yeah. He goes, because what happens is they get you down the road to the ninth inning where you're pot committed to the deal. And then you'll accept certain terms of your of your role that you may not want to accept. So yeah. uh, certain things like that, that you'd never know. I've never sold a company before. Um, and then another who sold his company and now he's working for that company, buying companies on their behalf, very valuable insight. He goes, Damon, you have to have an experienced investment banking firm and you must have an experienced attorney that does M&A work at least a half a dozen deals a year. He goes, yep. because I'll tell you, we put terms out there when some of these firms, they hire a general attorney and we put out 50 terms that a good attorney would knock down 40 of them. And an inexperienced attorney will let them all pass. We'll say, great, if you're not going to knock them down, we'll, we'll keep them in. So really learning from other people's experiences and leveraging my network was a valuable thing, probably saved me. Uh, a lot of heartache, 
maybe some regrets and, uh, you know, so, uh, and, and I think the other point was strategically, cause I had a profitable company, uh, and I live within my means. I had saved up enough wealth that I didn't need to do a deal. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So, so I did not have desperation, right? Because the truth is that this is okay. going to be perhaps the biggest deal. Certainly up to this point it is, but if all my wealth was locked up in the, in the business, it's a very different conversation, a very different energy in the negotiation, right? It's a desperation. Like if this doesn't happen, my whole future independence, financial wealth is is at stake. But yeah. I had already achieved financial independence. So this was now not playing with house money and I'm not you know, denigrating the money, but all these things, uh, freeing myself from the business, having a great management team, having good systems, processes, structures, a good brand, and not needing to do a deal financially, all those things I think allowed me to just be in a better position to actually uh, command a, a good deal. That was a, a fair deal for both of us, but I think sure. that was acceptable to me and met my standards. Yeah, no, and that's a great point. And listen, you know, uh, folks, I mean, in my uh, negotiating book, you know, classic framework, it's uh, CDE, right? You know, clarity, detachment, and equilibrium. And what uh, what uh, you know Damon's talking about right now is the is the detachment part, right? He was able to be detached to the outcome. Sure, I mean, as I always say, he had a preference the deal get done, right? But you know what? If it didn't work out for him, he was in no place of scarcity, need, desperation, whatever. He would have been more than fine. So, I mean, that's such a place of power to come from. And there's no ego in that. There's just there's just confidence in what's so like, you know, like, listen, I got it. You know, I, I got it really good. Like I like this could be fine, you know, for a long time. Right. Um, so, you know, if you don't get the right deal, you know, that, that, that willingness to walk, be able to walk away, not from anger, upset ego, but from just knowing that you get clear on the criteria. And, you know, you heard Damon, like we're not going to get into specifics about the deal and the economics, but some of his other criteria, you know, he's already alluded to, right? The team is taken care of. It's a people, you know, first company. It's not, you know, somebody is just buying it for the money. It's like, right. So he got clear. So clarity, right? I talk about clarity first. He got clear on, on what his was acceptable, not acceptable in the deal to him, what was important, right? Then he's then he's able to be detached to the outcome because he doesn't have to do the deal. So he's got a right. preference, but you know. Right. And then that that helps you maintain your equilibrium. You don't get thrown off, you know, and, you know, uh, in a negotiation. So that's a classic example of, you know, and, and and listen, you know, that's, you know, that that's 30 years of work. Right. To get you in that position, to be able to be in that, right. that position. Right. Well, uh, I, I joke, I'm an overnight success over 30 years. Right. That's right. That's right. But, that's, uh, but so you're right. Important. It was uh, I said I was committed to the process, but uh, unattached to the outcome. Right. That's so I was, I was going through and frankly, I brought the buyer because they're from my industry. They know me, obviously. And uh, I brought them to the investment banking firm. So, you know, uh, if this didn't work out, I wasn't planning on selling. This was the uh, this was the chance. Right. And yep. if I decided I did want to sell, as I had always imagined, that I would run a process. Right. That yep. I'd, I'd, you know, get an auction and try to drive price up and, you know, get as many options as possible. But all the other things, you know, that I mentioned before, all the strategic things, all the cultural things just seem to be aligned, um, that this seemed to be the best shot that I had. And if it didn't work out, my worst case was I was going to walk away with at least a ballpark valuation, a real right. one, not, not not an appraisal, right. right? But a real life valuation that if if they were only willing to go to this and I had an expectation to hear, and we walked away from each other. A, 
you also have to read the landscape, right? That A, we are the, the largest in the industry for our market. B, that there's a lot of opportunity, a lot of other companies that are consolidating in the industry. So, and you know, I figured in the worst case, if I ran a process, then, you know, if they were still interested in that, they can come back and be one of the bidders. And, and I, I even said that to them. I said, if this doesn't work out, then, you know, if we can't get to a number, then, you know, maybe sometime later, you'll be doing it you know, competing against your four biggest competitors in the industry. So I wasn't trying to be a jerk. I, I was just trying to be really honest yeah. and clear about, you know, that I, you know, I have a high standard for my company and a high standard for all the reasons that I talked about. And you know what? They seem to recognize the value strategically, financially that our company offered. And uh, so far, I think it's been a real win-win all around. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So I think is is at least one more area that I want to just explore a little bit. And that is, um, you know, sort of like uh, the internal work that you did to have, because, you know, we had a conversation before we went on air and it seems like, you know, that not only the deal's great, but like you're doing great, right? You're loving life. And that, and that doesn't happen to everybody after they sell, right? right. You know, for some folks, uh, you know, they find themselves not knowing to what to do with themselves or, you know, they, they I've, I know some folks who had depression, like, or they're, they're just lost a little bit or they go. So, I'm always also interested in sort of, you know, the internal work, right? And, and you know, and, and what, what you did in that or to create a new vision or to get clear on what it would be, that's having it really, really work for you. Because I also have examples of that. I mean, there's there's one client I remember that a friend of mine, I joke about, he was a, a financial, uh, you know, consultant on a deal, he used to work at the company. And, you know, and we had this vision because so many entrepreneurs, they sell a company and then they get antsy and a year later, they're they're in another company, right? right. You know, and we, and we have, you know, one guy, it's been 15 plus years, and you know he's good, right? You know, he, right. you know he, he he bought the last lot down on Ponte Vedra Beach and knocked down the house and built a beautiful home. And he's you know plays golf and he he had this dream to um, the first year out. And, you know he's, he's got a huge amount of money. He he had a dream to go around the country in a in a in a, in a like an airstream, you know, and, and like drive around. So they did right. that for a year, and he's great. But other people you know struggle with it. So talk a little bit about you know. What if what you did and why you think you know like you're you you know it's work it's work for you not only economically not only for the team not only whatever but from a personal life point of view. Well, as you know, I mean, I'm kind of the poster child in the chapter of kind of having your cake and eat it, right? It's kind yeah. of, but I think part of it is being clear on uh, what's important to me, right? Yeah. So certainly the business was the driver for a lot of the things in my life, but. I wasn't willing to sacrifice some other areas. So obviously my family and being there for my kids and for my wife and investing in friendships and all that stuff, like you need time to do that. You know, uh, I didn't want to be a one trick pony. So uh, I had kind of found a way, you know, through, you know, delegating and understanding that my roles to make things happen, not get things done and all that. So I had already kind of through the years, I think created space. And I think also, I have a lot of varied interests, right? I, I play in a band, I have a boat, I, you know, play sports, I, you know, so I have a lot of varied Probably. interests. 
right. travel, you know. And I've spoken to other people about this whole life, in, you know, work-life integration. And I said to them, so do you have any other interests? No. Uh, so, you know, what about your business? I love my business. <laughs> what about your family? I love my business. <laughs> and I, <you> know, right? <laughs> like, uh, so uh, you work at 100? He goes, I love it. Uh, okay, well, then that's you. I mean, don't fix what's not broken. That's good. But that wasn't me. Right. I, I had a lot of other interests. And so I created that space. So even if things didn't work out at the end of the day, I still had, you know, celebrated the journey. Right. So along the way, I wasn't like, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, they have this almost balloon payment mentality. Right. I'm going to sacrifice my health, my family, my interests, my friendships, all that for, I'm going to put 10 years in and then one day I'm going to sell for a billion dollars. That's not guaranteed. Right. There's a lot of banana trucks that can come and take you out. You know, and a lot of other factors that are not in your control. COVID, I mean, it's just one example of that that's completely unexpected out of your control. I've seen industries, you know, restaurant businesses, other ones that just sure. got crushed. So, you know, my, my take was kind of like balancing what was one day and also celebrating and living while the journey is going on. So I, I don't regret e- either one, you yeah. know. So, uh, but... A lot of the benefits of that was one, it gave my team confidence and, you know, that I trusted them and that and that they could, you know, stretch their legs as, and build their muscles as executives. Two, it made the company, I think, more valuable right? Sure. because a new owner can come in there and, you know, it's not like the owner is the end all be all. And now you take that, you know, heartbeat out, out of the company and you're left with a corpse. Um, but I think after the sale, which is really what you're driving at is I have friends who've sold. And they were the end all be all in their company and they were going a hundred miles an hour and, and they got made an offer they couldn't refuse and they really didn't have any other interests. Yeah. So, and their identity was the entrepreneur. Right. So I, at least what I see that when they hit the wall of selling, they got put into an existential tailspin because what else, you know, I lost my identity. This was, I was important. I, you right. know, who, the meeting. Who am I if I'm not right. the right. founder, owner of. Right. right. Plus, yeah. you know, the ego piece, like the meeting starts when I show up, you know, right. it's right. like there's all that stuff. So now, now you're not that important. Right. So you're kind of <laughs> marginalized and maybe you don't know what's important to you. And now the thing that was your full identity and was your activity, you know, your that gets ripped away from you very suddenly. And I could see how that so. So far, it's been uh, seven months and uh, I, I'm doing fine. You know, I have a lot of other interests that I've leaned into, do, been doing a lot of travel. I'm still there as a resource for my team with the integration, which, of course, any integration is cultural issues and service and um, uh, systems and process, all that integration stuff. So I'm a resource to my team to help navigate that new landscape. But um, I did get from one of the entrepreneurs who sold that I spoke to. Their suggestion was take a year. <laughs> don't don't do anything for a year. Right. right. Uh, right. Just kind of like let the dust settle. And then, you know, because people are saying, oh, so you're retired now. Uh, that doesn't fit. Right. <laughs> like, I don't feel retired. I'm 54 years old. Right? I, have, I have a lot left to offer, but uh, I'm right. not jumping into anything either in terms of big investments or any big commitments. So I'm allowing myself, you know, just some time to ponder and maybe and really taking all these strategic tools I learned in business and turning it in on my life is okay. Well now let's say I'm on the back nine of my life. 
Yeah. You know, what do I want that to look like? What do the next 20 years look like? 54 to 74, you know, it was kind of a, a key time, you know, where I've raised the kids, I've, I've built a business, I've done all that. But so now, now what? So I don't necessarily have the answers, but uh, it's very interesting going through the process of a- asking the questions. Right. And you're okay with not having the answers because, I, you know, you know, I, I love the fact that, you know, it's one thing to say you had other interests, people and others, that's definitely part of it. But I love the fact that you went to the identity conversation because I think that's, you know, because people could look to develop other interests, but if their identity is still only related to the business, if their worth is only related to, to the business, yeah. those are not going to satisfy them, you know, either. And, you know, and I've had, you know, not, not in terms of an exit like that, but I've had various points at which, you know, I remember going back to, um, you know, the, the, the recession that was hitting already before nine 11 happened and, you know, whatever, um, you know, I, I split up a, a law partnership back then. And, you know, I had this like, Nice corner office and, you know, the 42nd floor of what later become the Trump building. But at the time, well, you know, it was not. And we're down on Wall Street. I had a view of Statue of Liberty. And, you know, and, and you know, it was a recession time hitting. Within, you know, 9-11, we were five blocks away. We are out of the office, you know, for a while. You know, I knew there was going to be an impact there. And I knew a lot, like I'm, I'm, I'm enough of a business guy and, I, and one of the, you know, uh, one of the minority of lawyers who understands financial statements and numbers, right? <laughs> uh, and, um and, and I was like, I, I should be cutting back, right? I should be consolidating now and cutting, be careful on expenses, or whatever, because we, you know, I think we're going to have a rough patch here. Um, and I ended up taking a smaller, a smaller office in my office suite, renting out my big, beautiful corner <laughs> office. And and you know, it's totally logical. The numbers made sense. The toughest part of that for me was the identity conversation of who am I if I'm not that guy in that, you know, that successful guy in that amazing, you know, corner office for the view of Central Liberty, right? That's right. Like, you know, that was the process I, you know, I had to go to. I think that's like a little microcosm of what some folks go to, you know, and yeah, like, and, you know, like that was an identity conversation. Yeah, I think, think the identity is a huge part. And then there's another thing I'm finding is the habits, right? 30 years of, uh, of certain things like being on the computer, being in meetings and yep. uh, feeling like you have to do something all the time. So, you know, I think the idea of taking some time off and kind of, you know, maybe replacing those habits or at least looking at them and seeing, well, am I doing this just because this is how I, what I've done for 30 years? Like, so I've really tried to reduce my time sitting at computers, you know, uh, you know, sitting at a desk, you know, so I pretty much do that one day a week. Now uh, I've replaced kind of my mornings with more, you know, uh, health routines like stretching and meditating and about gratitude and eating healthy breakfast and going to the gym. So like all the stuff that, that people say they want to do if they have the time and, and now I have the time and just kind of unwinding some of those really deeply ingrained habits of working and feeling like besides the identity, that productivity, Yes. Right? That, that if you're not doing something, then what are you? So I'm still working on just sitting still for a little bit. And uh, I think it's going to still take some time with the energy. I still have. That's a great point. Yeah. I mean, just breaking, you know, like, you know, uh, changing those old habits and then, you know, maybe replacing them with new habits that yeah. fit the new vision. That's that's awesome. So um, my final question on the podcast um, is um, is different from one from episode 25. And it's <laughs> and it's and it's particularly, uh, you know, it's actually a a cool question in light of where you're at. Uh, you know, I think it's a cool question anyway. But so, you know, my highest uh, ideal in life is freedom. Uh, and um, that, for me, that's everything from freedom from like all people from oppression to 
why I'm an entrepreneur and I haven't had a boss for right. 30, you know, 30 something years. And so my final question always is, uh, you know, what does freedom mean to you? And, and what, and, you know, how does it apply in your life and business? So it's, it's a particularly interesting time to ask you that, <laughs> that question now. <laughs> it is. Uh, well, certainly being an entrepreneur, same thing. I mean, you, just about every entrepreneur says, I don't want to work for somebody, right. you know, I want to, you know, because I, I even tell, tell my, my kids, if you control your time, you control your life, right? If you work for somebody, you don't control your time. So, yep. so just that alone, being able to have the freedom of your schedule and be able to take a day off or, you know, cut out for the afternoon and take your kid to a ball game, whatever, you, you know, all that freedom. But I think now, I think the questions are, what would you do if it weren't about money? Mm. <laughs> right? So what, yeah. what would you do if money wasn't the wasn't even a factor. Yeah. Right. So that, that's an interesting thing. Or what were the things that you always wanted to do, but didn't have time to do or didn't make yeah. time to do. Um, so those are the things that I'm uh, working through now. Certainly uh, what's come up so far is making a contribution and uh, yeah. sharing uh, the good fortune and maybe some of the knowledge I've learned. Uh, I think there I've gotten to the point, I think it's cliche that people who sell their businesses, they become speakers, coaches, and authors, right? And they go on a speaking circuit and they do all that kind of thing. I'm not interested in that at all. Um, And I think the other thing, at least at this point where I'm at, is I'm not that interested in um, contributing to successful people being even more successful. Uh Uh You know, I think... I'm leaning towards figuring out where I can help people that maybe don't have opportunity and don't, uh, you know, are disadvantaged. And, uh, and I'm leaning towards, uh, you know, young, younger people, children, you know, where you can get them and have maybe a outsized impact over their lifetime. I haven't really nailed that down yet. It's part of the process that I'm working through, but I think that's where I'm at. Like, um, kind of balancing having an amazing life, right? The travel, uh, the experiences, the friendships and, you know, the health and all that stuff. But I think that alone would at the end of the day be empty. Yeah. Uh, because my business was very kind of mission-based in helping, you know, heal the world and, yep. you know, uh, help people through difficult times. So certainly I've probably leaned into that part of it so far as the newfound freedom, but the, the other one is the freedom to, uh, to really, share the good fortune, not only just in terms of the resources, but in terms of time and experience. And, you know, I, I really feel that that would uh, feel like I'm doing well and doing good. Love it. Love it. Love it. And, you know, listen, I've known you to be somebody who's been generous with his knowledge and and his time and, what you know, and, and, and his expertise and mentoring and that kind of stuff, you know, uh, even during the time when you were <laughs> building the business. So, um, you know, so it's, uh, you know, it's amazing to think about because, you know, you ask the questions, which is a great inquiry for people who are even, you know, aren't there like, what if you, you know, didn't have to worry about money? What if you had all this time? The cool part is you actually don't have to worry about money. You don't, you do have the time and, you know, and you could really focus on, yeah, what you want life to be, what your contribution want to be. So it's like, a, it's a beautiful moment. Like, you know, you're like, what I would say is, you know, you're really in the place where you're deciding you know, like you have all those freedoms and now like, what am I going to do with them? Right. And that's, you know what I, I refer to is, is uh, this process of creating blank canvas. Right. Yes. 
So yes. it's so with a blank canvas, part of it is very exciting, right? All the possibility, right. but it's also very daunting. It's like right. a right. blank canvas. Where do I start? What do I do? So that's probably the best analogy that that I can give. It's but net net, it's it's a good problem to have. I love it. I love it. Damon Gersh, thank you, my friend, for coming back on the Deal Quest podcast and sharing your journey. I think it's going to be, I know it's, you know, be very valuable for the listeners. Always a pleasure, Corey. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Deal Quest, where we help you understand how deal driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the Deal Quest community. Join the Deal Quest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90 minute mastermind. In the Mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a Mastermind format. To sign up for the free Mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.